Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I guess you could say that today's show has a gimmick to it in the sense that Carl Zimmer and Ben Zimmer, who are brothers, are going to be guests in different segments about completely different topics. They're both very well-known writers and thinkers and journalists, and they're not talking about the same thing at all. And they'd be great guests. Well, I mean, each of them has been on this show you know, multiple times before, and they're guests that we would be happy to have in any context. Carl has written a book kind of about the definition of life uh, and whether there can ever be one. And Ben right now is interested in an artificial intelligence that seems to be able to beat really good humans at crossword puzzle filling in, if that's the right term. Anyway, the Zimmer Brothers after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Welcome to the show. You know, this is uh, maybe this is only of interest to us. I don't really know. By us, I mean probably me and Jonathan McPants and maybe Cat Pastor. But I don't think we've ever done anything quite like this before. I mean, we've we've had people on, I think, who are related to one another, usually on together. The idea of having the two Zimmer brothers, Carl and Ben, on the show completely separately. <laughs> um, I don't know. It just appealed to us somehow. And uh, we're not going to be going into their family dynamics or anything like that. There's articles you can read if you want to read about that. Although there's one thing I did want to mention, and that is that, you know, growing up, they had very, very busy parents. And so uh, Carl and Ben Zimmer, who both went on to become very, very famous writers, journalists, thinkers, um, and who are going to be here today to talk in one case about Carl's book, which is called Life's Edge, uh, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. A little small question, really. Uh, ben Zimmer will be joining us later. Uh, he's uh, famous, famously uh, a columnist on language and linguistics for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's going to actually be talking about artificial intelligence and uh, an AI that can actually beat human beings at filling in crossword puzzles. Uh, but when they were growing up, they had very, very busy parents, uh, and their uncle Don really kind of stepped forward, uh, and you know, really provided, a, I think, kind of a guiding hand to both of the young boys. And it, 
unfortunately kind of ended on, on kind of a kind of a melancholy note. So uh, here's Don Zimmer talking about that. Going into the third year, I kind of got a feeling that I wasn't needed anymore, which was all right with me, but it kind of wore on me a little bit to where I, I, I went home one night and I told my wife, I said, uh, I'm quitting, we're going home. She said, that's, I don't think that's the way to go. She said, you want to go home, we'll go home. Just tell them you're retiring. It sounds better. And I listened to her. All right. I, it's, it's sad even when I hear it now. And I hate to be airing some family laundry of the Zimmers. But, okay, I should just <laughs> – that's Don Zimmer. <laughs> that's actually Don Zimmer talking about his ending his time as the bench coach under Don Baylor of the Colorado Rockies. I th- I, there's a memo we get every week to saying, please stop saying things on the air that are not true. Apparently there's some NPR policy about it. I it's very small-minded, but all right. Joining us now, the first of two Zimmers, or many Zimmers. We're going to play some Hans Zimmer. Really, we are going to play some Hans Zimmer scores later. Uh, Carl Zimmer is a science columnist for the New York Times. His newest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Uh, welcome back to our show, Carl Zimmer. Good to be here. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the really kind of fascinating things about all this is, and, and near the end of the book, you do a thing where you kind of review all the things that we know in the 21st century, you know, I mean, the fact that we could, for example, uh, I'm not you and I, but humankind could almost instantly sequence the genome uh, of a brand new pandemic virus, you know, and, and put it in a, a shared database, uh, and, you know, and, and then develop vaccines uh, pretty, pretty quickly from that. You know, it's an indication of our incredible level uh, of biomedical sophistication, but we don't really have a definition for something as basic as the idea of life, right? There isn't a commonly held definition for what it means to be alive. Yeah, there, there, there are definitions, but there are just too many of them. There are literally hundreds of definitions of life that have been published in the scientific literature, and there are more that keep coming out. So there's no, there's no convergence towards, towards a simple, straightforward definition of life, which, you know, as a science writer, I just find astonishing. I mean, imagine that chemists just didn't agree exactly on what a molecule is. It's 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 a strange state of affairs, but I think it tells us something deep about 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 life itself. So I'm going to sort of uh, counterintuitively kind of go to the end of the book for the beginning of the conversation just to show people how weird this can get. To me, one of the weirder moments, this is a really fascinating book, by the way, and it's just loaded with storytelling, historical story t- storytelling, and you'll learn all kinds of things about maple trees and snakes, and we don't have time for all of that today, and that's why you have to get Carl's book, obviously. But towards the end, one of the weirder stories it involves a guy named Lee Cronin. And there, here's the Papulian through line to Ben. Uh, uh, it's a Lee Cronin with essentially a robot that, well, you pick up the story. This is a robot that makes kind of a facsimile of life with, you know, very little to go on to do it. Yeah, that's right. So Lee Cronin is a chemist at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And um, he wants to address the question of how life began. And, you know, the general idea is like, well, whatever life is, it started through some kind of chemistry. And people have been trying to sort of say like, okay, well, you know, how do we get to our, our proteins and our DNA and so on? So they're actually try- trying to think of like, how do we get to life as we know it? And Lee just says, well, you know, maybe like lots of different kinds of chemicals can produce things that we might call alive. So I'm just going to build a robot that's just going to grind through like countless combinations of very simple molecules and see, see what happens. And 
what's happening is that he is getting these uh, fascinating, weird droplets that um, they kind of look alive. They, they race around in their, their dishes like, uh, you know, like, like cats. Uh, they, sometimes they will split apart as if they are reproducing. They do all sorts of lifelike things. And these are so simple. Like they contain, typically contain four or five very basic chemicals just mixed together. Um, and so that might tell us something deeper about life than the kind of life that, you know, we know here on Earth. Right. And they like, I think, make little, getting little formations together and do things. <laughs> it's very eerie. So I'm going to ask you to kind of basically defy the, the premise of your book and say, OK, so these things are not really alive, comma, because blank. <laughs> well, um, they... Uh, well, you know, they, they, they can split apart, but they don't sort of split apart in a sort of reliable way. They, um, you know, they don't have sort of any kind of genetic information that, you know, they could pass down and it would differentiate one group of droplets from another. But, you know, but we're on the, and we're in the borderlands here. Like there are things about them that are, that certainly would qualify them as alive. Um, but we deal with that all the time with things like viruses and so on. We're surrounded by things that are check some of the boxes that we think are essential for life, but leave other boxes blank. Right. So in a way, we have in that moment two different very interesting strands in your book. One of them is, as you say, and we'll come back to this in just a couple of seconds, this whole idea of borderlands, borderline things, uh, things that are not exact. And viruses, I think, are the most prevalent example. But there's also in that this sort of ongoing question of, well, could you create something? Could could a human intelligence or a robot uh, create something uh, that would be uh, alive? And of course, this we can go all the way back to romantic poets and to Mary Shelley. uh, And pretty quickly, we get to this. Dr. Bauman, I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. At first I experimented only with dead animals, and then a human heart which I kept beating for three weeks. But now, I'm going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life. And you really believe that you can bring life to the dead? That body is not dead. It has never lived. So um, this, uh, the story of Frankenstein doesn't grow up out of nothing. It grows out of um, a kind of a parallel scientific conversation that was being had at that moment and many, many moments preceding it. Uh, there's a way in which Erasmus Darwin, Darwin's grand, Charles Darwin's grandfather, feeds into this. Maybe you can just say a little bit about this, this whole – because it really also gets into that question, that what is life question. Is life a force that you could somehow or other activate and, and put into something? Yeah, so um, so you can actually find um, uh, scholars asking what is life um, pretty early on in the in the history of modern Western science, um, and 
I think one of the reasons for that was that um, in the 1600s, um, people like Galileo, people like Newton were recasting the natural world as being sort of passive matter in motion and subject to these different physical forces. And so uh, then some people said, well, maybe we ourselves and our bodies are also just matter in motion and maybe life is just a, a certain uh, kind of physics. And there were others who said, whoa, whoa, hold on. There's something really different between something that's alive and something that isn't. And, and they would sometimes talk about this in terms of a vital force, that their life was imbued with a vital force. And so then the question is, well, what's that vital force? What produces it? And, you know, Mary Shelley very you know, brilliantly sort of like captures this, the weird kind of horror of thinking about whether scientists might try to actually... Uh, control that force if it existed and be able to use it to bring the dead uh, back to life. Um, you know, and in a way like that still kind of dominates our thinking today. That's why Frankenstein still resonates for us today. I love the little detail that one of the people kind of trafficking a little uh, and, and, uh, kind of late-ish in the game, too, in this notion of the life force, or in his case, Elan Vital, was uh, Henri Bergson, who uh, came to America to lecture about this. And you say, may have caused the first traffic jam, the first traffic jam in New York City, because people are so excited about this kind of science philosopher. Yeah, well, I mean, and in a way that like people like Bergson in the early 1900s were kind of giving uh, people sort of a hope that, you know, life was not quote unquote, just chemistry. You know, there was something a bit depressing about, uh, you know, the, 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 bio, the, the new science of biochemistry. Um, it was like, oh, is that it? Is that all we are? It's just a series of chemical reactions. And so someone like Bergson would be like, no, like there is more to life than that. And, and people, ate, people ate it up and caused traffic jams to, to, to hear him talk. So, I mean, in fact, though, there, is st there are still pressing needs to figure out how we're going to define life, how we're going to kind of create a bar that it has to cross uh, to, to, to be life. And, and one of the groups that has to do that is NASA, because if they find blueberries on Mars, which, parentheses, they did, but not real blueberries, uh, you know, when, if you find stuff, then you've got to say, well, is this thing alive? So they came up with life is a self-sustained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution, which seems to me like it would really be very disappointing to the Henri Bergson fans. But it, it also feels, I don't know, there's something very insufficient about that. Uh, I feel almost like the Darwinian evolution part of it almost begs the question, you know, that life is something that acts like it's alive. Well, and that's that's the challenge, which is that um, when you're trying to define something like life, you sort of end up saying you kind of end up saying like, well, life is this thing that is like life um, or life is something that has all the qualities of life. Um, and, and somehow that's disappointing. And, and I think part of it is that it may be like approaching life the wrong way um, instead of trying to define it. You know, uh, we should be think waiting for scientists to, to really develop a theory of life, which we really don't have yet. Yeah. And I think the definitions also, the problem with the definitions is they're not as interesting. I mean, you can have a true defini de de definition that still doesn't really feel interesting or useful. I mean, one of the other ones you cite is uh, a Russian-born geneticist, uh, Edward Trefanov, uh, who says uh, he gets it down to self-reproduction with variations. Well, it'd be kind of hard to argue against that definition, but you just sort of wonder, you know, how interesting that definition is. And maybe the best way to do this is to get into an example. We talked about viruses before. We spent the last 
12 to 18 months talking about viruses in this country, people who never thought about viruses in their lives and think they know a lot about them. But there's like this ongoing, you know, not entirely resolvable thing. Is a virus alive or not? Explain why that's even a question. Well, um, you know, so viruses, uh, they uh, they do a lot of the things uh, that we think are incredibly distinctive for being alive. And so you mentioned, you know, Darwinian evolution. Um, you know, we have seen, you know, the coronavirus just displaying Darwinian evolution uh, in spades. And it's just, you know, these variants are, are continuing to adapt to us and make our lives difficult. So, yeah, viruses can definitely evolve. However, um, they are not self-sustaining. They don't have like they don't, you know, a virus doesn't go out and eat something and then just be able to, you know, keep its own metabolism running and have its own homeostasis. It's just a package of genes that it pushes into a cell. That's it. So, uh, you know, one scientist who helped come up with the NASA definition of life was asked, well, what about viruses? And he said, oh, yeah, they don't make the cut. Um, but, you know, I just, I find that weirdly fascinating because like here's something that affects life so much that we're just going to say is, well, not quite alive. Right. And it's also very interesting because if you listen to virologists and microbiologists talk about viruses, they talk about them as kind of having what a philosopher would call an interest, right? I mean, a virus has an interest uh, in invading a cell and finding another host. Um, You know, I mean, certainly the people who study viruses, the viruses seem as though – you know, they, they, they have a purpose. And I realize that's not anywhere in the NASA definition or a lot of these definitions, but it's it's hard to watch them and understand what they do without thinking, well, this is a thing that is trying to keep going, uh, which is, I guess is different from self-sustaining. Well, I mean, but that is actually something that um, people would talk about, you know, centuries ago when they were trying to figure out what the difference was between life and non-life. And so they would say, well, Okay, you know, fine. The moon goes around the Earth, thank to Newton's laws of motion, um, and and that's that, and that's enough to explain it. But you know, a, a living thing, whether it's a bacterium or or a rabbit, um, it it develops things that have a purpose. You know, like so, a rabbit's ears are for hearing, so that it doesn't it can hear its predators and get away and. And, you know, and rabbits behave in certain ways that like enable them to stay alive and to reproduce. So there is a purposefulness in in living things. It's a purpose that's brought about through evolution. Um, but um, but yeah, but I mean, you just don't find that in out, you know, in the in the in the natural world. A mountain isn't, you know, doing something because for some ultimate goal, it's just a mountain. So there's also the really interesting argument that um, – so, I mean, when we think of life, another thing we think about, we start talking about cells pretty quickly. And a virus isn't really a cell, but it can take over a cell. It can grab the steering wheel of a cell and start driving it in its own, quote, unquote, chosen direction. So one argument is, well, at that point, they're probably alive. Yeah. So there's a French scientist named Patrick Fortier who has tried to find a – a middle ground in the big debate about whether viruses are alive or not. And it is a debate that's going on for decades, actually. Um, and so what Patrick Fortier says is like, well, when a virus is just floating around on its own, uh, what at a stage that scientists will call a virion, um, a virion is not alive. But when it goes into a cell, um, that cell 
is completely reconfigured. That cell infected with a virus is no longer like the cells around it. Um, and you know, when people get COVID infections, you can actually, if you take an infected cell out of someone's airway and look at it under a microscope, you can see it's different. Um, the virus basically coaxes it to create all sorts of little uh, uh, sort of incubators for producing new viruses inside of it. Um, so yeah, so it, th that cell has a new goal. It has a new purpose to make new viruses. And so Patrick Fortera argues that this virocell, as he calls it, is its own form of life. It's a fascinating way to think about it. Of course, it doesn't know that it has that goal. Uh, I mean, and, and that's another part of this, right? Although, I mean, lots of things that are alive don't know that they're alive and don't really know what their goals are. Although, you know, there, there is an interesting section of your book very early on in the book where you talk about what are called organoids uh, and a question about whether they could become conscious. I mean, I don't know, maybe you can just quickly sketch that out for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is another thing that's out on that weird borderland of life and non-life. And, and um, it's particularly important because it's it's arguably human life. Um, so, um, so scientists have been able to figure out how to reprogram our cells with different chemicals. And it, and it turns out to be um, not as hard as people had thought initially. So basically, you know, I could take a, a little skin sample from your hand and I could put those cells in a dish and with the right combination of chemicals, I could reprogram it so that it would turn into uh, the kind of a neuron that would you would find in an embryo. And that would start to grow and divide and grow and divide into um, a brain-like structure, a million neurons, all organized in ways that are very similar to the human brain in terms of how the layers form and so on. And so scientists call these things brain organoids. And if you give them the right food, you know, these cells will sustain themselves. So they are alive. They are human cells. They're from you. Uh, and not only that, but they spontaneously start doing, giving off electrical uh, activity. They even start to organize into producing what look a lot like brain waves. Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which these things are not just looking like brains, but are behaving like brains. And so, you know, if we think of, you know, the human brain is like the, 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 the key feature of human life, you know, think about it. Like when people are brain dead, they're declared dead. Mm -hmm. So here we have this human brain organoid just totally on its own in a dish. What is it? You know, is it alive? Is it a human life? Um, do, do we accord it rights yet? You know, I mean, no one's no one's ever shown that a human organoid, brain organoid is conscious, but um, maybe we just haven't built a big enough one yet. Um, so there are some big questions that we're going to have to reckon with in the years to come with these things. I just feel like I'd, so there's one listener out there right now who took mescaline right before the show and is really freaking out right now. And he's like calling 211 and saying, oh, Carl Zimmer's talking about this thing and it's really scaring me. Um, but it is. It's a very freaky concept. Um, and speaking of freaky concepts, before we go to the break here, uh, when we seem to have a very Gallic uh, conversation going on here already, uh, but we should throw this, this uh, something that I had never heard of before, but uh, this thing called Cotard's uh, syndrome. Uh, Explain what that is. So, um, you know, I, I, in, in my book, I argue that um, part of the 
challenge with life, and part of one of the reasons we have this, this trouble with life is that we think that the question, what is life, should have a simple answer. And I think we think it should be simple because we ourselves know that we are alive. I'm alive, you're alive, but you know, uh, you, you didn't come to that determination by, through science, you just know it. Uh, and the, the striking thing is that there are people who uh, know that they are dead. Um, this is called Cotard syndrome. It was named uh, by, after Jules Cotard, who discovered this in 1874. And basically, he had a patient who said that she, had, she was dead. She had no brains, no nerves, no stomach. There's only skin and bones of a decomposing body. You know, and she's telling Cotard this. <laughs> mm. And so it's a very, it's a rare but, you know, persistent condition. And it's very unsettling. And I think it, it speaks to how um, what we take as being obvious actually is really more a product of how our brains are wired. If you change the wiring, it's not obvious anymore. Right. I mean, they've sort of figured out the area of the brain. It's, I believe, it's sort of close to the to the optic uh, area of the brain, but not wired to it. But there is an area of the brain, right, that is is implicated in Cotard's. Yeah, it looks like from brain scans, <clears throat> one possibility here is that there is a part of the brain called the insular cortex. Um, and uh, just, you know, just behind the eye, a few inches behind the eye. Um, and that takes in information from across the body, basically integrates all these signals just to sort of have a sense of how the body is doing. And, and it creates an awareness of the body. And, you know, you could argue that that's what we know that we're alive thanks to our insular cortex. So you damage that and all of a sudden people are getting, have, you know, kind of looking at their, themselves and they're like, well, but I don't feel alive anymore. So I must be dead. Mm. All right. We're going to have to pause uh, there. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to have a second uh, segment with uh, Carl. The final segment will be with Ben uh, as we visit with the Zimmer today. The book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. All right, we're back. We're talking to Carl Zimmer. Uh, his new book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. We, we were like having conversations right up to showtime about what we were going to keep and what we were not going to keep because there's no way you can cover all this stuff. So I decided at the last minute we're going to throw out some really fascinating stuff that you're just going to have to read about in the book uh, about that whole question that dogs public policy debates about when human life begins, when is the beginning of human life. And most of the easy, familiar, rote answers that you know are wrong, basically, and it may even be impossible to fully answer that question. And we're also going to throw out the uh, – we're going to not deal with the question, I think, of when life ends, how you know somebody's life has ended. Uh, that's all in the book. It's really, really interesting. We just don't have time for it. So um, because, I, I, Carl, I think I would rather concentrate on two other things. And the first one is this whole question about when – not when human life begins, but when life began. And, and there used to be this um, kind of thought exercise or something that uh, I can't even remember where I, where I encountered it, but it was this that idea – that the whirlwind, a whirlwind uh, flying over a junkyard and somehow or other assembling a 747 was more probable than life coming into existence. That life itself, the idea that, that life would occur on any particular planet, it was such an incredibly improbable thing. I don't know. Reading your book and le re learning about liposomes, uh, I, I find my belief in that model to be ebbing a little bit. It seems like maybe life should happen once in a while. 
Yeah, the, the, the idea that life was somehow uh, statistically incredibly improbable kind of got its start just from looking at um, proteins today and, and looking at how big they were and how, you know, particularly well they were kind of put together and, and just sort of like, well, how could all of this sort of possibly spontaneously come about? Um, and that's that was just a, a very crude, simplistic way of thinking about life because that's not that's not how evolution works. It's probably not how life began. Um, life may very well have begun just through kind of a repeated process of chemistry that just took place on Earth or elsewhere that just lent itself to over time producing more and more complex molecules. And then those molecules themselves were able to start reacting in ways that couldn't happen before. Um, and where might this have happened? Well, some people think that right chemistry might have been at the bottom of the ocean at these uh, vents where hot mineral rich water is shooting out and creating giant chimneys where all sorts of weird chemistry is happening today. I mean, you can go to these chimneys and you find bizarre chemicals being formed there right now. Um, others have argued that uh, ponds on the sides of volcanoes on the early earth would have been uh, filling up with water and then drying out and filling up with water. And if you run experiments that simulate that um, in a lab, you can end up with some of the building blocks of life pretty quickly. So, um, so yeah, so uh, life is not looking uh, improbable in the way people claimed it was before. Um, you might want to mention this guy, David Deemer, who's a, you know, fairly large figure in, in this conversation in your book and, and how he thinks that, say, lipids and RNA and stuff like that may be connected to all this without giving our listeners, you know, more than they can handle. <laughs> well, lipids are, are are basically these sort of oily, uh, greasy molecules. Um, they spontaneously form into bubbles. And um, we have lipids in our cell walls or cell membranes, and um, they would have been present on, on the earth before life. And so Deemer, uh, David Deemer, who's for a long time at the University of California at Santa Cruz, um, had this insight of like, well, if, if life was going to start, you would have to sort of have a place to put life in because, you know, life isn't just about having genes and metabolism, but like boundaries, you know, we are not just clouds of diffuse molecules. And he had this idea that, you know, in these ponds, you know, maybe these lipids would form these sort of like sandwich-like layers that would compress uh, things like RNA uh, and allow them to go through interesting chemistry and then form into maybe these sort of protocell bubbles. Um, and, uh, you know, they've done fascinating research over the years. Um, and people might say like, oh, well, what's the point of all this stuff? Well, you know, the, this kind of research has fascinating uh, uh, side branches, um, the, you know, real applications. Um, so, for example, you know, I got a Pfizer vaccine. My Pfizer vaccine is RNA in a lipid bubble. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the research that people like David Deemer were doing with these big questions about how life began fed into the development of RNA vaccines. Um, and, you know, lots of other uh, important applications came out of, of this, these basic questions about what life is. Yeah, actually, I couldn't get that vaccine. So I just lay in a pond at the base of a volcano for about three or four weeks. And I, I think I'm probably basically vaccinated at this point. Well, I, I wish uh, you the best. Yeah. No, I got the Pfizer too. Um, so, um, so I mean, this also bleeds into the question 
of well first of all the the first question is as we search for life elsewhere in the universe uh one of the reasons that NASA might for example have a definition of life um it, is it likely that we wouldn't even necessarily recognize life as it exists elsewhere in the universe? I mean, we tend to talk about DNA and RNA, but as you point out in the book, I mean, there's no particular reason why those particular proteins uh, that, you know, the things that we know and have on Earth will will be mirrored precisely or even vaguely by something from another planet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, there there's no... There's no clear reason that life has to be like we see it here on Earth. Um, now, it's possible that DNA and RNA are just really, really good at being genes. Fair enough. <laughs> but maybe there are other molecules that can do that, too. Um, so we have to be open to lots of weird possibilities. Um, and we also have to be kind of modest about, well, what do we when we see something or sense something like how do we know that it's alive? I mean, like if. If if we went to Mars and you saw a rabbit on Mars, um, you know, like according to the NASA definition, it would have to be capable of Darwinian evolution. Well, if you're just looking at a rabbit there, like, I mean, it's not evolving. It's just a rabbit. Um, but you might suspect that a rabbit on Mars would actually be alive. So maybe we need to sort of come up with with better rules for really identifying life. You know, there are actually astrobiologists I've talked to. I said, like, well, okay, when when you get to go to that moon around Saturn and to look for life, what do you what are the what are you looking for? What are your what are the criteria? And there, and talked to one astrobiologist. She said, I'm just I'm just gonna look looking forward to looking to discovering very weird chemistry. Maybe eventually it'll turn out to be alive or not. I, that'll be interesting too. Right. So um, we, we should explain about this moon uh, on Saturn, around Saturn. Uh, it's called Enceladus. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, Enceladus. Enceladus. So I was trying to turn it into an Eagles song. Enceladus, when will you? Uh, so um, this is this is a moon where there is stuff going on, and this stuff was noticed by a probe, which in your description kind of went, what? And then they turned it around and said, go back there, probe. Go look some more. Go look, go look some more. Go look 20 times. What is going on in this moon? So wh what have they found? Yeah. Um, so the, the reason that they uh, got so interested in it was because um, – so this is a, so the the space probe Cassini was shooting by Enceladus, which is it's about the size of Arizona, uh, and it's covered in ice, uh, and it goes around Saturn. And as Cassini went by, it turned out that there were these giant plumes that were uh, coming uh, out of the ice, these huge cracks in the ice uh, in the South Pole, and um, they were, uh, and so Cassini sort of basically sort of turned around and kind of circled Enceladus a few times and basically, you know, scooped up some of that plume and they found all sorts of stuff. They found carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, benzene, organic compounds of all sorts. Um, and so from that, they're like, okay, like something is going on down there. And what they basically determined is that the, the, there's a lot of heat at the core of Enceladus as it goes generated, as it goes around Saturn and you have these tides and, that heat is driving, you know, maybe what these these hydrothermal vents, like I was talking about at the bottom of our ocean, um, and so uh, and it's creating weird chemistry, and like you know, this maybe like life is beginning on Enceladus. Maybe it's already begun. 
um, it's it's plausible. Um, and so uh, Lori Barge, an astrobiologist I write about, you know, she would like nothing more than to go back. I mean, she would like to drill into Enceladus and go down in a submarine and see what exactly is going on down there. Um, and and I would love to go with her. I mean, who knows what's under that ice? It could be life as we don't know it. So let's end kind of where we began with uh, we were talking about Lee Cronin, uh, who had a robot uh, who, which made something that behaved in a very lifelike way. Um, and, and that gets us back to something that's, I guess, called assembly theory. Uh, and that might be a, a good way to kind of round out the conversation that we're having. Explain assembly theory and what it has to do with what we're talking about. So um, as I was mentioning earlier, um, you know, we're probably uh, going to be uh, making more progress towards understanding life uh, by coming up with a theory of, of life rather than trying to, to define it. And so theories are, are kind of big overarching explanations that can account for phenomena like, like life. And physicists come up with theories all the time for superconductivity, all sorts of other things. So, may, so maybe, so maybe there's a theory for life. And scientists are developing various theories right now. We don't know which one is going to win the day, but uh, one of them is is a theory that is particularly useful for identifying life. And essentially, what it says is that life um, can be distinguished from non-life because it's made up of things that are assembled in a lot of steps. So, you know, ordinary chemistry can, can assemble atoms into more complex molecules, but only up to a point. Um, and it seems that as far as we can tell, like uh, molecules above a certain complexity are only produced by living things. You know, there's a certain number of steps beyond which you need life's help. And so um, it could be that we could just like, you know, train and telescope at an atmosphere of a planet going around another star and say, oh, look we can recognize that there is this particularly large chemical compound in the atmosphere. And that, according to assembly theory, had to be produced by life. And then we could say, that star out there, there's life around it. All right. So I, I think that is where we'll end. This book is so fascinating. There's so much more in it. I mean, I'm really confident in saying we have just scratched the surface with Carl Zimmer, uh, author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Uh, Carl Zimmer, of course, writes about science for The New York Times. We're going to take a break. We're going to listen to a little Hans Zimmer. We're going to talk to Ben Zimmer. Who knows how Zimmerly we'll get. All right, of course, that's, well, not of course, but that is the music of Hans Zimmer, uh, who scored so many uh, famous movies, uh, because we have a very, very Zimmerly, Zimmery show today. Uh, we've been talking to Carl Zimmer. We're going to talk to Ben Zimmer in just a second. But before we do that, 
I have to thank a lot of people who are in, who for today will be named Zimmer. Kat Zimmer uh, is our technical producer, uh, and she's the one making everything happen, including Hans Zimmer music. And then the person putting it all together is Jonathan McZimmer, uh, who is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, now joining us uh, is Ben Zimmer, linguist, lexicographer, and language columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has very recently, anyway, written What a Crossword uh, AI Reveals About Humans' Way with Words. Uh, this is uh, an interesting kind of continuation from our previous conversation. Ben Zimmer, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here for the Zimmer Hour. Yes, it's uh, Super Super Zimmer Brothers. It's a new video game. Uh, you know, we talked about Frankenstein with your brother Carl. You know, Frankenstein, although he might have been an artificial intelligence, was just rubbish at crossword puzzles. I mean, if you gave him the clue fire and it's three letters, he'd probably write bad. In But after that, I mean, he's really not going to be able to do too much with this. However, things have advanced quite a bit. So maybe you can begin by uh, just telling us the very significant thing that happened at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. Sure. Well, um, at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, uh, which was held uh, virtually this year, usually it's held in Stamford, Connecticut at the at the Stamford Marriott. This year it was, it was held online, um, but there was uh, a competitor that was not human. Um, it was a, an AI called Dr. Phil, and that's spelled F-I-L-L. And uh, Dr. Phil was first created by a computer scientist named Matt Ginsberg. Matt Ginsberg uh, this year uh, worked with uh, the Berkeley Nat- Natural Language Group um, to build this AI that could uh, solve crosswords and do it very quickly. And in fact, this year, Dr. Phil uh, finished first in the scoring. Um, he, Dr. Phil was an unofficial competitor, so no prizes uh, given to uh, to any, any uh, silicon-based competitors. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, Matt Ginsburg has been doing this since 2012. That was the first year that he uh, entered the ACPT with his artificial intelligence, with his crossword-solving AI. Uh, it had been gradually getting better, but, you know, this year, thanks to that Berkeley group, uh, there were some big improvements that were made, uh, enough for... Dr. Phil to outscore all the humans. We should make the point that Dr. Phil is, is um, Phil is kind of a term of art in crossword puzzles. I mean, obviously, you have to fill in a crossword puzzle, but, but a Phil is a specific th- kind of thing in a crossword puzzle, right? Uh, yeah. In the crossword world, um, you talk about uh, a puzzle having, um, you know, good fill, for instance. Basically, you know, you often have a theme to your uh, crossword puzzle, something that unites generally all the long answers. Um, and then the rest of the entries are called fill because mm. it, you know, fills out the rest of the grid. Um, and so that was just the the funny name that Matt Ginsburg gave this AI back in 2012 um, when he first came up with it. And, um, you know, he would come to the ACPT in person at the Stanford Marriott and just be sitting in the back of the room and the, the big ballroom with all the competitors and um, giving um, his, uh, you know, his software the puzzles and seeing how quickly it could solve it. Um, and of course, you know, you have to be accurate if you're in a crossword solving competition. Uh, you you lose points um, if you get things wrong or if, you know, you, you miss certain squares, there are deductions. Um, and so, in fact, this year, even though, uh, you know, on the scoreboard, uh, Dr. Phil, you know, had, had the highest score, it actually made a few mistakes. Unlike the top human competitors, 
it didn't solve all the puzzles cleanly. There were, you know, there were seven puzzles leading up to a championship puzzle. And so despite those three mistakes, which uh, gave Dr. Phil some penalties, um, there was still, you know, it was, it was fast enough um, just blazing through these, these puzzles faster than the humans could um, that gave it the edge. We should say you were in this crossword puzzle tournament too, right? You went up <laughs> against right. Dr. Phil. Yes, I did compete, and I came in um, 143rd, which which is fine with me. I, I did make one mistake, uh, you know, uh, so that that cost me a little bit. But considering there were more than a thousand people participating, I'm I'm perfectly happy, uh, you know, where where I was, um, looking up at the at the ridiculously fast uh, human solvers. Um, Tyler Hinman ended up uh, winning it, and and he's he's won it several times yeah. in the past. We know Tyler. The other the other two finalists, Eric Agard and David Plotkin, they they were able to finish their championship puzzle in about three minutes. They each you know they hmm. each uh, finished this you know one final puzzle in about three minutes. If you watch them solve it, it's ridiculous. It's like their machines just uh, plowing through these these uh, crossword puzzles. Um, but on that championship puzzle, uh, you know, Dr. Phil was able to solve that one cleanly in uh, 49 seconds. So, um, so. We, we should talk a little bit about how, what Dr. Phil does that we don't do and what we do that he doesn't or it doesn't do. I mean, for example, one of the clues, I'm, I am rubbish at crossword puzzles. I just want to say that right up front. Um, but one of the clues was a pretty obvious one poet who wrote, Jellicle Cats are Merry and Bright. Well, I would have gotten that. <laughs> I know that it's T.S. Eliot. And I don't have to think about it too much either. It's just sort of, you know that, you know the stupid musical, you know all, you know all that stuff. Um, in fact, I think Cats was the answer to the real New York Times crossword puzzle uh, clue like two days ago. But um, but Dr. Phil, I don't know. I mean, he it has to do something different. And that, I think, involves eliminating wrong answers before getting to the right one. Yeah, basically. So um, if Dr. Phil sees a clue like that, um, right off the bat, Dr. Phil can recognize we need a name for a poet. Now, uh, there is an enormous database of past clues, of millions of clues and answers that have been used in the New York Times puzzle and other, other you know, major crosswords um, that uh, Matt Ginsburg has put together over the years. And so Dr. Phil can go back and check and see, you know, was this clue used in the past or something similar at least? And it just so happens that Elliot hasn't been clued quite that way, referring to <laughs> Jellicle Cats, I guess. Um, and because Dr. Phil can't just Google the answers, it's a closed system. Um, it has to just rely on, uh, you know, uh, basically whatever information it can glean from the clue itself without going and, you know, just like we'd be able to just check Google to see, oh, Jellicle Cats, right? That was T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Um, so it, uh, it knew that it had a, you know, a five-letter name for a poet, but there are, you know, other five-letter poets like Keats and Yeats and, and, and Blake and so forth. So, um, so it basically, it generates a list of candidates and then it basically assigns a weight or a value to each one of them about how likely that seems to be to be the right answer. Um, and, it, you know, it's similar to other AI systems. If we remember, for instance, Watson from IBM that competed on Jeopardy 10 years ago and beat the humans like Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter. Um, it was also generating lots of candidates for what an answer to a Jeopardy question might be. In this case, with the crossword, it's a bit of a different task because you know how many letters it is. 
And you also get information from uh, the crossing entries. So if this was an across entry, as you're filling in the, in the puzzle, you might know, oh, okay, well, based on these crossing entries, I know, you know, I have a good sense of what the letters might be. So that will narrow down the candidates. Um, and so even though Dr. Phil didn't know right off the bat that this was T.S. Eliot, it thought, well, maybe Keats or Yeats would be a better answer here for the poet that we're looking for. Um, based on all this other context of, with how, you know, how we solve the puzzle by looking at uh, how uh, squares might uh, share an across and down entry, it was able to zero in on Elliot. So we only got about three minutes left, and I want to deal with one other thing. There's something different from Jeopardy and certainly different from chess about crossword puzzles. There's a profoundly human element in there, and people who do crossword puzzles spend a lot of time being pissed off at crossword puzzle constructors you know, because they've come up with these kind of annoying clues. Uh, if you read Rex Parker's analysis in the New York Times, Daily Crossword Puzzle, you see this all the time. Uh, so there's a clue two days, two or three days ago it's uh, 39A, recurring pain, question mark. So question mark always means this isn't really a logical answer. This is, And the answer was imp, which is like this incredible stretch. It's like somebody who's wants, who needs IMP as a fill and, and, and is going to, instead of like a clue that you could maybe suss out, is making a little joke and, and you, you know, either you get it from the other stuff around it or you don't. I mean, you know, how does Dr. Phil deal with that? Because that is not really... Uh, 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 there's no real easy path from recurring pain question mark to imp. Exactly. Yeah, those tricky clues that are tricky for humans are even trickier for for Dr. Phil. And so, yeah, it has trouble making those leaps of logic, basically. Um, But of course, that's what makes crossword solving so interesting is that you can get these forms of wordplay. They may involve puns, uh, various kinds of lateral thinking. And, you know, you know, uh, humans can do that with some effort, uh, but uh, to have an AI be able to do that is really challenging. And so you mentioned like the question mark at the end of a clue, which tells the solver something funny is going on here. It could be a pun or something like that. Well, there was a clue like that um, at the ACPT and the clue was substandard. Um, and so actually using this neural net network um, system that the, the Berkeley group developed, um, think that Dr. Phil was able to like think about this, if you want to say think about it, but um, by looking at that question mark and because of this neural net, it knows basically that that means something that might not be the standard definition is being used here. Uh, but it went in a completely wrong direction. It's, it, it came up with candidates like tuna on rye because it figured that a sub had to do with a sandwich which a human um, a human being might have gone there too you know and then and sure, yeah absolutely as you're kind of going through what what could what yeah. could this mean if it's if it's something a little indirect the actual answer was periscope yeah. is a sub standard um so you know eventually dr phil could get there too but you know that's an example of the way that we use language in very creative ways the people who make the puzzles um and solve the puzzles are relying on a kind of human creativity that is very difficult for an AI to mimic. And very human. So there's still, ben, still ben lots to do in this area, basically, yeah. in terms of uh, being able to tackle that sort of thing. Ben Zimmer, we've got to stop there. Uh, ben Zimmer, linguist and lexicographer and language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. We love having him on our show. We've had him lots of times before. We're going to have him lots of times in the future. I just want to say I used to live in this building that was sort of full of people, who the kind of people who did crossword puzzles. And I got on an elevator one day, and these two people just said to one another, one said to the other, I am out of communion with Will Shorts. 
You know, <laughs> that's kind of the kind of human reaction to post crossword puzzle constructors. All right, we have to stop there. 